0: We are going to continue our series in uh, the epistle of 1st John, so grab your Bibles and open up to 1st John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. 1st John chapter 4. I'm going to read the first few verses of our text and we'll jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover. 1st John chapter 4 verse 1. John says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you recognize the fact that Uh, One of the things that makes you a Christian, by definition, is what you believe. We as you, as an individual Christian, we as a Christian community, we as a church, uh, what we believe distinguishes us from the world, and it distinguishes us and marks us off as Christians. And what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about ourselves, that we are sinful, we're in need of a Savior, that God is good, He created all that is, and He made it all good... We sinned and rebel, but he sent his son, Jesus. God became a man to, to rescue and redeem fallen man. Okay, okay, all of that is what we believe in, and much more. Uh, but that's what we believe as Christians. And we know that that marks us off from other religions and from general spiritualism and from those in the world who are maybe naturalists or any other worldview. We're, we're distinguished as Christians marked off by what we believe. John says this in Chapter 3, verse 23, look back there a few verses. In 1 John chapter 3, John says this is the commandment, okay, this is what God commands, that we believe, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as He commanded us, okay? So so it starts with our belief. We believe in God, therefore we believe in Christ. Through Christ we're reconciled to the Father, Okay, so we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. As a result, we love one another. That's the action that we're marked off by. We looked at that a bit last week. All right? But in terms of where it starts, it starts first with belief. Right? We believe in Jesus. The primary command, or the most fundamental command in Scripture, uh, is that we would believe, right? that we'd repent and believe, that we'd put our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus, that we'd leave our foolish ways and, and, and turn to God. That's the most fundamental command. That's where our lives as God's people, as his kids, as Christians start. Uh, In addition, on the other side, the most fundamental sin or uh, um, transgression of God is to disbelieve him. Unbelief is kind of the fundamental sin. Ultimately, it has eternal consequences. If we disbelieve God, we disbelieve his word, we don't trust him, we don't put our faith in him, that's unbelief. So, belief is kind of the fundamental command. Unbelief is the fundamental sin. We know that this is true. But we also need to point something else out. Though unbelief is the fundamental sin, uh, there is a, a, a right kind of unbelief. There are certain things that we need to be very clear on that we do not believe This is where John is going this morning as he begins this passage he's in. Christians are marked by what we believe, but in some sense we are also marked off and distinguished by what we don't believe, particularly what we don't believe about God, what we don't believe about the gospel, what we don't believe about God's word. One author I was reading this week said something like, unbelief can be just as much a mark of Christian maturity as is belief. So what we don't believe is very important. There is a right kind of unbelief. This is what John says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. This is where John's going this morning. There's a right kind of unbelief, particularly when it comes to what we believe about God, what we believe about the gospel, what we we believe about God's word, particularly when it comes to understanding truth from false and true teaching from false teaching. That's where John is going this morning. He's going to help us. He's going to give us a grid. He's going to give us some markers to help us identify and be aware of this issue of false teaching. He's covered this already in chapter 2 of this epistle, and he's revisiting it now. This is a critical issue for John. In the church he's writing to, there are people among the members of his church and around the members of his church that are espousing a false gospel. And this isn't unique to John's day. We'll get into this a little bit later. This has been an issue from the beginning of the church all through history and up until now. False teaching and false teachers are a major issue and they're rampant in the world. And so John is going to help give us some guidelines and some criteria to help us discern true And false. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Number one, point number one for your outline the content of the teaching. The content of the teaching. How do we discern true and false? Right from wrong? Christ from Antichrist? Well, first we look at the content. We look at the content. What's the substance of it? What's it made of? What's actually being taught? What's going on? What's the content? That's the first thing we look at. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, when you hear this term, test the spirits, I don't want you to think of some sort of spiritual interaction with a spiritual being. You and the spirit are sitting down and you're administering some sort of test. That's that's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is discerning, again, true teaching from false teaching. He's talking about discerning true teaching from false teaching. Here's the deal. Behind every teacher, there is a spirit. Behind every teaching, there is a spirit. Okay, John says, test the spirits, look, for many false prophets, false teachers have gone out into the world. He's connecting these spirits that need to be tested to the false prophets behind every prophet, that's someone who preaches God's word, who speaks God's word, behind every false prophet or false teacher, behind every teacher is a spirit. The question is, is it a true spirit or a false spirit? Is it a true spirit or a false spirit? The spirit behind a false teacher is, is very different than the spirit of God behind a true teacher. Okay, So the question is, is it a true spirit or a false spirit? Is it a spirit of righteousness or a spirit of evil? Is it a spirit of Christ or the spirit of Christ or a spirit of Antichrist? Okay, That is... The question, and this dichotomy of of, of truth and false, of right and wrong, Christ and antichrist, true true teaching and false teaching, is not isolated to John or a few other places. It's threaded all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, including in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, Jesus deals with and and, and kind of distinguishes this very thing. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is with believing Jews, those who were following who who had believed him, presumably some of his disciples and others. And John records this in, in John chapter 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and Jesus looks at this crowd and he says, if you abide in my word, What I tell you, what I give you, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you'll know the truth, because I've given you the truth, my word is truth, I am truth, so if you abide in in me and my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, there's the first part, there's the truth, there's the right teaching, there's the right doctrine, there's the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about sin, the truth about salvation, okay, that's what Jesus gives us. But alternatively, on the other side, there's false teachers. And a few verses later in John eight forty four, Jesus then turns to a group of people called the Pharisees and other religious leaders. And he says this in John eight forty four. You, he, he first looks at the believing Jesus and says, you'll have the truth, the truth will set you free. Then he turns, now he pivots to these religious leaders. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires, okay? You're of Satan's family, and Satan has a certain will and certain desires, and you share his desires. You want to do the same things your dad does. Your spiritual father is Satan. Jesus says, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, Okay, so we have this dichotomy. Jesus comes, he speaks the truth, he sets captives free, he gives righteousness. Okay, Jesus speaks true, uh, infallible word of God. He himself is the word of God. And on the contrary, Satan speaks lies and those who are his. On his team, who are his teachers, who are his guys, they speak lies just like he does. And the irony is, again, that we're talking about leaders in the church among God's people. These are Pharisees. These are guys who are trained in the Scriptures, and and they're, they're preaching God's Word and teaching others about God's Word, but they're false teachers. They're false teachers in the spirit of Satan and the Antichrist as opposed to the spirit of Christ. This is part of John's purpose in writing this book. In John 2.26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, this is on his mind as he's writing to this church. This is a critical issue for him. Okay? Now, listen, Jesus looks at these Pharisees and says, Hey, your false teaching is of the devil. John says that, that false teaching is the spirit of, of Antichrist. Okay, so those seem like pretty serious accusations. What we have to point out, they are serious accusations, what we have to point out, though, is that false teaching doesn't always appear that way. It doesn't always appear obvious. Its ugliness is not always on the surface. In fact, it's often subtle, and the ugliness is hidden. False teaching instead is tempting oftentimes. It's alluring, and it can be attractive. Sometimes it's the message that's attractive. All right, we're going to get into some examples later on, but just to give you one glaring example, uh, the message of the prosperity gospel, when falling on ears that don't know much about Jesus, don't know much about the Bible, uh, it can sound attractive. All right, the prosperity gospel... Uh, says that, hey, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Bible, we're all good with that. It's very deceptive. all right. False teachers don't say, come worship Satan. They don't say that. They may themselves even be deceived. Right? So they don't, they don't reveal the ugliness. The ugliness is usually not on the surface. They'll say, we believe the Bible, we believe in Jesus, we have something what we call a church. And listen, here's the deal. If you believe in Jesus, that's awesome. You'll be saved. But here's, here's what happens. You have to have enough faith in Jesus. And if you have enough faith, if you believe him really strongly, really passionately, then he'll work in your life powerfully as long as you have enough faith. And here's some of the ways that he works. If you believe him enough, man, he'll, he'll bless you materially. He'll, he'll provide for you financially. If you really believe and you have lots of faith, he'll even make you rich. He'll even make you rich and wealthy. You'll have more than you could ever want. If you're struggling with finances right now, brother, you just need to have some more faith. And if you have more faith, God will just bless you materially. If you have enough faith, God will bless you physically and mentally. You'll be in tip-top shape. You won't suffer from ailments or disease or sickness. Your body won't break down. Yeah, maybe you'll get some old age, but you won't get sick or ill, and you can just get healed as long as you have enough faith. Your relationships will be stellar. You won't have any relational struggles or issues because you have enough faith that God will bless all your relationships. That's the prosperity gospel. The name gives it away. The idea is the more I believe in God, the more prosperous He'll make me. Of course, that's true spiritually. That's true spiritually. Not the more we believe in God, the more God will bless us spiritually, but man, as we're walking faithfully with God, we're communing with God, we, we know God, uh, there is spiritual prosperity. I mean, we become new creatures, new creations. We look forward now to heaven. We're in God's family. But if you look at the life of Jesus Christ himself, uh, you see he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't so healthy either. He, he, he got beaten up. He actually got crucified. He died. He bled and died in tremendous amount of pain and agony. Uh, were his relationships all perfect? Not at all. Uh, he had his best friends give up on him. He had one of his best friends flat out betray him to his enemies. Uh, he had conflict with religious leaders his whole entire ministry. Now, he didn't sin at all. He never sinned in word or in deed or in thought or in motive in his relationship with finances. He never sinned at all. The point is this, though, in a fallen world... We look at the life of Jesus Christ, who's supposed to be our example, and we say, well, the pattern of Christianity is certainly not health, wealth, and great relationships and wisdom. That's not always the pattern. Sometimes they're suffering. We'll grow in wisdom and stature with God like Jesus did, but sometimes they're suffering. But to an ear that doesn't know much about the Bible, doesn't know much about Jesus, the prosperity gospel can have uh, some attractive bait on the hook. False teaching is often tempting and attractive, and sometimes it is the message. Sometimes it's the method. Sometimes church is set up to entertain uh, instead of disciple. Church is set up to entertain instead of disciple. Um, Look, we want to be hospitable to people. We want to do ministry with excellence. We want to do things really well. Uh, We should never think, well, it's, this is you know, the church is spiritual, so we don't have to put energy and effort into the little things, because it's no big deal, God's got it. and that's not the right way to think. We, we ought to do ministry with excellence, and we ought to provide a, a place and a venue and a, a church service and ministries that minister to people and, and that are hospitable to people. But these are for the purpose of discipleship, not for the purpose of entertainment. When the church begins to look like the world, it doesn't have much to offer the world. The goal is not to make unbelievers as comfortable as possible so they'll just keep coming back to church and so we set up a rock concert and we set up uh, all kinds of things that they'll really enjoy it'll make them really comfortable so they'll be entertained, so they'll go to church. That's really not the goal. The goal is discipleship. And sometimes in an effort to Bring in as many people as possible and hear a gospel that may not be super biblical. Churches will do some strange things. They'll do some strange things. Sometimes the attractiveness is in the message. Sometimes it's in the method. Sometimes it's in the method. But listen, we have to keep in mind that attractive and true are not the same thing. Attractive and true are not the same thing. The question is not, does this teaching or this place or this vibe tickle my fancy? That should not be the question that we ask ourselves. Is this, does this fit me? Is this, do I like this? Is this my style? Is this my vibe? The question we should ask is, is it true? Is it true? That's what we should ask. That's the most fundamental question, at least, we should ask. John says that false teachers, false teaching is often subtle. It often looks attractive, but behind every false teacher... There is a false spirit. In addition, many false teachers, false prophets, false spirits have gone out into the world. second part of verse 1 of chapter 4. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, This is not a small-scale operation, in other words. This is a rampant issue in the world and in the church. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you look at some of the best-selling books, that are Christian titles, not all the time, but oftentimes they're books that have a Christian stamp on them with someone with a big smile on the cover, or someone who looks really attractive and really wealthy and really put together on the cover. And they have the Christian stamp on them and they're filled with garbage. Not all the time, but oftentimes. The stuff, the content that passes as Christian, is sometimes absolutely astounding. It's vaguely spiritual, kind of deism and moralism. It's not Christianity. You turn on Christian radio, oftentimes what's coming through the airwaves is garbage. We turn on TBN or Christian television, what comes through the television screen is garbage. And let's not even get to the internet. Look, here's the quandary with, with, with technology like the internet is that good Bible teaching, resources of all sorts, are available for free online. It's it's an amazing thing. But we have to be really careful. If we don't know our way around, if we don't have a compass for discerning what John says, true from false, we can get in some real trouble. Okay, so for those of you who who are younger Christians, before you log online somewhere, before you pick up a book, before you listen to someone on the radio, find an older Christian in our church to, to, help you, to, help, to help you walk through that, to help you learn, to help you get a grid and a compass and a framework so you can know, okay, I want to avoid this, and here's why I want to avoid it. And I want to go for this, and here's why I want to go, go for that. Okay, you need, we need help with this. Don't jump into the pool of the Internet uh, blindly. It's, it's really hit or miss. It can be a very dangerous thing. There are many false prophets that have gone out into the world, Uh, books, radio, television, internet, in addition, churches. Churches, just because an organization calls itself a church does not mean it's a faithful church. This is a difficult thing to grasp, but this is what John has been saying for this whole epistle. Oftentimes, false teaching and false teachers, they're not some some group of people way out there, disconnected from us, out in some nether region that we never have any real contact with. It's more just an idea for us. We've never really experienced interaction with these people. That's not what John says. He says these people are in the church, from the church, around the church. This is what he says in chapter 2. Verses 18 and 19, look back there with me. John says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have come. Okay, All Antichrist means is against Christ. Okay? It's not. Don't think some, the beast in Revelation, just against Christ, opponents of Christ, contrary to Christ. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Now here's the key, verse 19 these antichrists, these people who were against Christ, they went out from us. They were part of the church. They looked like Christians. They were part of the church body, physically at least. (coughs) They looked like Christians. They talked like Christians. They acted like Christians. But, John says, they were not of us. They were not of us. They looked like they were part of God's people, but they weren't God's people. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might be complained that they all are not of us. These are people from the church. We ought not to be deceived about this. Paul says something similar in Acts chapter 20. He's been in a particular church in a particular place for some time, and now the Holy Spirit's calling him elsewhere, and he sits down with the leaders and the, and the elders of the church, and he exhorts them and warns them about this very issue. This is what he says in Acts 20, starting in verse 28, Paul looks at these elders and he says, pay careful attention first to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And here's what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is a big deal. It's not unkind. It's not unloving. It's not ungracious. It's not uncharitable to speak clearly about false teaching and false teachers. Paul says there are nasty wolves out there that that like to jump over the fence, and they look for fat, vulnerable sheep that they want to munch up. And Paul says if you are in leadership and your position is We just need to be kind. We can't call falsehood falsehood. We just need to give everyone a million chances. Paul says, no, 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 that's unkind to your people. You need to protect your people from wolves. You need to protect the church from false teachers. You need to protect God's people, God's kids, from the assault of the enemy. That's what you've been appointed to. He's talking here to pastors church leaders, particularly to elders. okay, That's the deal. So this talk about false teaching, the clarity of it is not mean. It's not from a critical spirit. It's not to be unkind. It's just simply biblical. We must not be ignorant. We must be aware of what God calls us to do. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. They'll have no mercy. And listen, verse 30, from among your own selves, Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. This, this is often an in-house issue. Often an in-house issue. Okay, so so we need we need we need clarity on this issue. We need to be aware there's lots of false teachers in the world. Our goal is not to go around with a shotgun looking for everybody who Errors doctrinally a little bit. There's a difference between error and heresy. There's a difference between error making a mistake and false teaching, for sure. But but nonetheless, we ought not pretend like this is not an issue. It clearly is for the apostles and the biblical authors. This is threaded all throughout the New Testament. John devotes a lot of this epistle that we're in to this matter. Again, he views it as critical. But, we also have to say this. John's goal in this is not that we would be Again, theological headhunters. That's not what his goal is. Right? There's a difference between false teaching and error. His goal is also that not that we would be nervous or scared or unsettled. The goal is not that we'd walk away from reading or hearing this and think, oh my goodness, am, am I believing the right things? Have I ever listened to a false teacher? I'm I'm nervous now. I've lost my bearing. I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain. Am I doing the right thing? Okay, that's not his goal. He doesn't want to shake us up that way. Here's his goal. That we would be informed, that we would be aware, and that we would be equipped. Informed, aware, and equipped. Church, he wants us to be discerning. He wants us to be discerning. We ought not, in the name of general unity... Just think everyone and everywhere that says the word Jesus, man, we're all the same. We're not. There's different Jesuses. Do you know that? There's different Christs. There's the Christ and there's Antichrist. There's true teaching and there's false teaching. And sometimes the difference is subtle, but it's so devastating and damaging. Charles Spurgeon says, discernment is, is not so much knowing right from wrong, Discernment is more knowing right from almost right. That's the kind of discernment we need for these kinds of issues. John's goal is that we'd be aware, equipped, informed, that we would be discerning. He wants us to practice critical and biblical thinking that we wouldn't be swayed back and forth by any wind of doctrine. Now he's going to help us do this. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God... Okay, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. John says, okay? Here's the point. We must test before we trust. This is what John's getting at. We must test before we trust. Here's what he says, by this, here's the test. Here's the test. Every spirit that confesses Jesus, that he's come in the flesh, is from God. Every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Here's the test. Is it Jesus-centered? Is it Jesus-centered? We're talking about the content of their teaching. How can we be discerning? Okay, We've got to look at the content of the teaching. And the, and the test is, is it Jesus-centered? Is it Jesus-centered? Jesus has come in the flesh. Okay? That's Jesus-centered. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. That's of the Antichrist. Okay, look, the whole Bible, the whole Bible, all the different books, all the characters, all the themes, all the storylines ultimately point to and are all connected as one ultimate story. Okay, This is the story of a Savior coming to earth to redeem fallen man. That is the primary story of the Bible from Genesis to revelation. The Old Testament points forward and prom- promises and points forward to this coming Savior. In the New Testament, He arrives. He arrives. Jesus Christ arrives in the flesh. God actually becomes a man. He becomes like us to live for us on our behalf. We've lived sinful lives. He is the God man, lives a perfect life in our place. As a result of our sin, we deserve wrath. You know, God has punishment for sin. God has wrath for sin. We've sinned against a holy God. And he would not be just if He said, well, you just go ahead and get away with that. No problem. Nobody, not not one person in their right mind would ever think that a judge in court was righteous or good or in the right if they took a criminal and said, well, no problem. No justice needs to be done. You just go free. I'm gracious. That's not how justice works. But, Jesus Christ comes in our place. He lives for us, but he also dies for us on the cross. He dies in our place, and God's wrath is poured out on him, and therefore it's not poured out on us when we believe in him. And to do all that, he had to come in the flesh. He had to come in the flesh. That's what the whole Bible is about. That is what the whole Bible is about. There's lots of stories, lots of characters, lots of themes, lots of stuff going on, but if if you can boil it down to one thread that is what the Bible's about. The story of the coming Savior and the story of what the Savior actually accomplished. The Bible is about Jesus. Therefore, church preaching the Bible must be about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. Therefore, faithful preaching ultimately is about Jesus. John says, if it's not Jesus-centered, it's not of the Spirit of God. Listen, the, the, the purpose of preaching is not to give you a bunch of moral commands. Here's what God wants you to do. Here's what you need to go and be better at. Now, there's application in preaching, but that's not where it starts. It doesn't start with us picking up Bibles and saying, hey, you need to be better in this area. Here's what the Bible says. Don't steal. Do you steal? You need to stop stealing. Don't, don't do bad things. Do you do bad things? You need to stop doing bad things. Get in an accountability group. And stop doing bad things. Now, that's part of it, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is not, here's what we must do. The primary purpose is pointing to what Jesus has done and as a result, how we respond to Him in faith. All right? So we want to make much of Jesus, and then we want to encourage each other to be like Jesus. Part of preaching, then, in the application, is saying, hey, let's strive together, by God's grace, to look like our Lord Jesus. That's application, but preaching first is pointing to what Jesus has done. John says if it's not Jesus-centered, it's not true. If it's not Jesus-centered, you've deviated from God's intention. John says there's lots, there's lots of counterfeits. Here's the test. If it misrepresents Jesus, if it distorts Jesus, and I'll even take that further, if it takes the focus off Jesus, then it's false. Then it's false. Do you realize that throughout history, the, false, the, the heresies, the false teaching, the false doctrine, all throughout history, most of it, interestingly enough, most of it centers around the person of Jesus. Most of it is not about the Father. Most of it is not about the Spirit. Most of it is about the person of Jesus. Just to give you a flavor of this, I'm going to uh, wrote down a few heresies throughout history, and I'm going to list some of these off to you, not to give you a history lesson, and not so you memorize a bunch of heresies, but to give you a flavor of what the church has had to deal with over the centuries. Lots and lots and lots, this is just a small sample size, lots of false teaching centered around the person of Jesus. Let's start with a doctrine called adoptionism. It's the belief that Jesus centers on Jesus, is not eternally God, but he became God sometime after his birth. So he's a man, he becomes God, okay? That's a total false teaching on the nature and person and deity of Jesus. It totally distorts the whole deal, the whole doctrine of Christ, okay? Arianism. This was popular in the fourth century. You can read about a man named Athanasius who was not an Arian and who fought Basically, by himself against the Arian world, many of Christians at that time practiced this false doctrine of Arianism. Believed it. It's the belief that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were are are lesser created beings and not persons of the Godhead. So they'd say we talk highly about Jesus. He's still the Savior. He died on the cross. We love Jesus, but he's not really God. He's a created being. Maybe he's kind of divine, but ultimately he's created. Okay, it totally dis- distorts the person of Jesus. How about docetism? The belief that Jesus was divine and while on earth he only seemed human. Okay, it's kind of what John's saying. John says, no, no, Jesus actually came in the flesh. Docetus would say, well, he just looked that way. He just seemed that way. He wasn't really a man, though. He wasn't really fleshy like we are. He, he-, he wasn't fully man. He was just God. He just looked like a man. Okay, messes with the person, nature, work of Jesus. But the Ebionites, a Jewish Christian group that believed that Jesus did not exist before his birth and that God adopted him at his baptism. The kenosis, the belief that Jesus ceased to be divine while on earth. So you have that one kind of the opposite way. So he is God, but he comes to earth as a man, and then instead of adding humanity to his divinity, which is the right teaching, the kenosis theory says that. Actually, God became a man and only a man. He stopped being God. Okay, well, you can see how that messes up the person and work of Christ. We could go on and on and on. Modalism, Monarchianism, Monophytism, Nestorianism, Socinianism, all of these in some way or another meddle with the person of Jesus, his nature, and his work. And just to be clear, these doctrines have not gone away, they've just evolved and become a bit more modern, less classifiable, as Christians have cared less and less about doctrine, and less and less about the scriptures. There's not as many clear-cut uh, false doctrines of false teaching nowadays, at least that are widespread, but they've just kind of evolved into these modern sorts of vague, jellyfishy type of teachings, positive thinking is rampant in the church. The prosperity gospel, as we mentioned earlier, is rampant in the church. Progressive Christianity. It's a revisionist view of the scriptures. It has a strong focus on social justice and an overemphasis on politics. okay all of it is all of that is rooted in liberal Christianity in the modern era, okay? Believe it or not, the right- wing like right wing Christianity type deal it actually comes from. Modern liberalism, ironic enough. Moralistic therapeutic deism, kind of the general feel. The description I read on that was just new the new American religion. We don't have time to unpack all of that, but the name is quite telling in and of itself. So these doctrines have not really gone away. Uh, false teaching has not gone away. It's just evolved into something a little bit more palatable for modern ears. Here's what John says. Don't first trust, instead, first test. Test before you trust. You must test before you trust. We must test the content of teaching. Okay, this is critical, absolutely important. We also need to note this that while we want to be discerning about teaching and diligent and vigilant about that, we also know that there's two parties when it comes to sermons being preached there's the preacher and there's the hearer. John's given us some instruction. What we do when we're hearing. What we do when we're receiving. How do we discern true and false? But, but now he wants to move to the other party, to us, as we receive. He wants us to be discerning about teaching. He also wants us to attend to our own hearts. And to be discerning about our own hearts in addition. Point number two, and the last point for us today, the character of the listener. The first was the content of the teaching. The second is the character of the listener. Verse 4, little children, you are from God. Okay, he switches here from their teaching to now us. You are from God. He says in verse 4, and, and I've overcome them. You're from God. You've overcome them. For, because, here's why you've overcome, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you, that's the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. Look, here's the deal. We need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God. If we're going to discern false teaching, if we're going to discern right from wrong, if we're going to be able to do that for ourselves and help others with with that, if we're going to be able to overcome worldliness and worldly teaching, we need the Spirit of God. And for Christians, John says, you have the Spirit of God. He wants to warn us. He also wants to assure us. Friend, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, your life's been transformed if, if, if you believe who he is and what he's done, and you're seeking to follow him as a result, that means that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. God has actually made his home in you. John says, He, He, He who is in you is greater than he was in the world. He's talking about the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. He who is in you. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal, uh, mystical force. The Holy Spirit's a person, the Holy Spirit is God. And the Holy Spirit has made His home in God's people, in Christians. We need the Spirit of God, and Christians have the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, church, gives us faith when we have no faith. And he renews our heart. Uh, Titus says that, that the Spirit of God it, it, it washes us and, and regenerates us and cleanses us and renews our heart. That's how we become Christians. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He applies the work of Christ to us and changes our heart. But then ongoing, He renews our heart. He gives us faith. When we're fearful, when we're doubting, when we're forgetting God, when we're apathetic, we ask the Holy Spirit for faith. We ask Him for faith. And He'll give us faith. He'll give us faith. But we must lean into Him and ask for faith. The Holy Spirit gives us Love. He gives us love for God and for others. How many of you, when you were not Christians, you weren't that loving? Maybe you were really mean. Maybe you weren't really mean. You just didn't really care too much about other people. You certainly didn't care about God when you weren't a Christian. I know I didn't. We didn't care about God. Maybe we cared about some people, but not many people. Maybe some of you were like that. You become Christians, and sometimes it's a quick process. Sometimes it takes some time, but the Holy Spirit puts love in us. Paul uh, in Galatians says that love is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning it's a result, it's part of the result of the Holy Spirit living in us, that we'll grow in love for God and for one another. And so, man, when we're feeling selfish and self-centered, we're not pursuing others, we're not loving others, we look to the Holy Spirit and we say, help me love. Help me love. I know you're in me. Work in me now to love and work that out of me. The Holy Spirit gives us love. The Holy Spirit gives us conviction. We admit that we're sinful. We admit that we've done wrong. We can admit more than generalities. Mistakes were made. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, I'm not perfect. I've done wrong things. And we can move from that kind of immature, vague level of speaking uh, with no qualifications to, man, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned before God. The Holy Spirit's convicted me of that. I can humbly admit that now because the Holy Spirit is working in me and now I can repent of sin. Because I'm convicted, and and I know that I'll ask for forgiveness, and God has forgiven me in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us conviction for that. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in the Scriptures. That means He leads us into truth. He Himself is truth. He leads us into truth in our life. He illuminates our mind to the Scriptures. He is the Spirit of Truth. So what that means is when we're reading the Scriptures as Christians and we're seeking to know God, not as an academic exercise, but seeking to know God and learn about who He is, that that the Holy Spirit is actually there helping us understand, illuminating our minds, giving us insight into the text, showing us what God intends for us to learn about Him from the text. The Holy Spirit does that. He leads us into truth as we read the scriptures, this, was, this is why we talk about the scriptures so much. It's so important that we understand this is God's primary way of speaking to us. I remember I was talking to a guy one time, and he said, well, God speaks to me in different ways. And I said, well, God doesn't, God doesn't do that. God doesn't speak in different ways, not primarily. He said, I don't really read my Bible. God speaks to me in different ways. And I said, well, brother, that's just not accurate. There's no replacement for God's Word. This is how He speaks to us, primarily. The Holy Spirit convicts us, the Holy Spirit can lead us in our conscience, but the primary way God speaks is through God's Word. If we want to hear God's voice, we must be in God's Word. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, leads us in that. The Holy Spirit gives us strength in our weakness. That's what Romans 8 says. Any of you feeling weak, weary? Worn out, beat down, the Holy Spirit gives us strength. The Holy Spirit helps us to press on. The Holy Spirit helps us to be faithful even when we're, even when we're weak. That's such good news, church. That's such good news. We feel strong sometimes, but then pretty quickly we, we realize that our strength is quite fleeting. The Holy Spirit's is not. It never runs out. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. He's inexhaustible, and His strength becomes our strength. Romans 15, in addition, says that the Holy Spirit gives us hope. Gives us hope. A lot of people are feeling hopeless right now, especially during an election season, during an election week. uh, Different reasons, different sides. The point is, a lot of people are feeling hopeless. If we put our faith, if we put our hope in the affairs of the world, sometimes we'll be excited, sometimes we'll be hopeless. If we put our hope in the person of God, if we lean into the Holy Spirit for hope, we'll never be disappointed. We'll never be disappointed. His hope never disappoints. The Holy Spirit protects us. He seals us. That's what Ephesians 1 says, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's guarding us. He's protecting us. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. That also means that Jesus doesn't let silly sheep who aren't thinking right jump over the fence and say, well, you have free will, go ahead, jump on over that fence, nothing I can do. Nobody snaps. Sna- nobody snatches the sheep out of Jesus' hand. Uh, Jesus protects his sheep. He protects his sheep from outsiders and he protects his sheep against ourselves sometimes, doesn't he? Jesus protects His sheep. He does so through the Holy Spirit. We're sealed, protected, guarded by the Holy Spirit. Finally, the Holy Spirit points to and glorifies Jesus. That's His primary ministry. He points to and glorifies Jesus. So again, the Spirit of truth works through His Word. True teaching teaches God's Word in a way that makes Jesus central because He is central and the Holy Spirit points to Him teaching that is not Jesus-centered, is not sound or accurate. Listen, for protection against lies and against falsehood, we we need an objective standard. We need uh, to major on the Scriptures. We need to uh, be clear on the Scriptures. We need to be clear on who God is and what God has said. We need to be gracious with each other because we can have disagreements, to be sure. But but we do need to, to have clarity. We need to have clarity on the Scripture. But the goal in that is not to just cram in the most information. The goal in that is not to score the highest on the Bible trivia exam. That's not really the goal. The goal, instead, is to know God. It's to know God and to look more like Jesus. It's to know God and to become more like Jesus. And for that, we need need the Spirit of God. John Calvin says this regarding this verse. He says, Unless the Spirit of Wisdom is present, there is little or no profit in having God's Word in our hands. Now, we need the Spirit of Wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Wisdom to apply God's Word to us and to illuminate our minds to God's Word and to help us to know God as we learn God's Word. Church, you and I have not overcome the world. Jesus Christ has. Jesus has overcome the world and His Spirit has made His home in us and in Him we've overcome the world. In Him we've overcome the world the world. This is John's assurance to us. He wants us to be discerning, but then he pivots and says, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them because Jesus has overcome them and the spirit that's in you has overcome them. They are from the world. They speak from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God and you listen to us. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In him we have overcome See, on our own, uh, we know that uh, we'd be deceived in a heartbeat. I mean, we were deceived before we knew Jesus. When we were on our own, we were deceived. I mean, I was deceived about God. I was deceived about myself. I was deceived about sin. I was deceived about Scripture. I I didn't believe the right things. We were deceived, and on our own, we're deceived in a in a a second. We drown in a sea of uncertainty and all the rest. But He has overcome. And now He lives in us. And so we lean into Him and we rest confidently in Him. Church, I pray that you do that this week. I pray uh, maybe you're feeling uncertain this week. Maybe you're feeling doubt. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Maybe you're feeling beat down. I pray that you would lean into the Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd lean in to God the Holy Spirit because He's taken up residence in you. I pray you'd lean into the faith He offers you, the love that He will work in you. I pray that you'd lean into humility that He'll give you to confess sin and to confess hopelessness and to confess faithlessness and to ask for help in those things. I pray that you'd lean into Him for hope and not the affairs of the world. I pray that you'd lean into Him for further understanding of identity. You'd lean into Him for truth. You'd lean into Him for discernment. You'd lean into Him for life and encouragement. Father God, uh, we, we, we are grateful people. We're grateful to be called yours. We're grateful uh, that you sent your son Jesus to live and die for us and, and rise again. We're, we're grateful that you sent the Holy Spirit to apply all the work of Jesus to us. Uh, we're thankful for a time to get together even virtually and, uh, and open your word. And I pray for my friends, Jesus. I pray that we would be discerning people. I pray that we would be watchful people, we'd be alert, we'd be aware. I also pray we'd be people who who are deeply connected to you, who commune, commune with you well, who love your spirit and who lean into you, Holy Spirit, for all the things we need for life and godliness. For we know that you have overcome the world and you provide every single thing that we need. So help us to lean into you this week and in this season. In your good name. Amen.